0: I'm about to hit the intro. We can go from there. This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm right. So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's a hundred k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. A race can only go ace. Never want to see another B some jay What's Let's good, fam? Pay. It's your host, Jim Let's Pruitt, a.k.a. Pay. Farm D and ED, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. And of course, I have a special episode, and this was going to be really special to me. I have one of my best friends that's going to come on and share with you guys just some wonderful knowledge. I have, again, my friend, my pal, a physician, Kevin Allen Jr. Uh, please go ahead and introduce yourself with some more and just give them a background of where you're from and where you're trained.
1: Hey, man. Thank you for having me here, brother, Jimmy. Um, like you said, I'm Kevin Allen, Jr. I'm a practicing pediatric emergency medicine physician in Augusta, Georgia at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Um, I did medical school at the illustrious Meharry Medical College. Shout out to Black History Month. Meharry is Black history. Um, then proceeded to do pediatric residency and then pediatric emergency medicine fellowship here in Augusta, Georgia at Augusta University. Um, and I also did some kind of extra training to also be qualified as a uh, child abuse and neglect uh, medical position as well.
0: So: Goals out there for yeah, anyone who's in the
1: five, six years.
0: <laughs> Goals for anyone who's out there in, in the pediatric EM world. So we're going to go ahead and today we're going to be talking about the treatment of asthma. It's something that we see quite a bit and I really want to talk about some of the more acute asthma and just the different caveats that go into that. Again, I've been fortunate we've done this at the bedside together and I think it's pretty cool if we can have a team and really talk about what's the thought process because I believe some of the I just got a text message earlier today. One of the issues that our nursing staff have is that they feel they don't understand the rationale behind why we're doing certain things. So I really want to get into that a little bit more today and just go through a patient case and really get into that. So let's go ahead and transition to that. All right, Kevin. So we have a patient case here and we have a seven year old female that presented to the ED with sudden onset of shortness of breath. Her last exacerbation was seven months ago and she used her rescue inhaler four times over the last two weeks. She is not on any other medications other than the Raw PRN. Her current vitals at triage is going to be her temp of 98.7. Her BP is 116 over 75 heart rate 131 respiratory rate 33. And she is in moderate distress when the nurse brings her to you. So let's go ahead and jump into this. Um, Kevin, from an ED perspective, how are you going to work this patient up?
1: Um, yeah, so the first thing we want to do is we kind of want to get a snapshot picture of how much uh, respiratory distress she's in. Um, you know, asthma being a respiratory disorder, and their main issue being um, with the ventilation in the expiration phase of ventilation, um, we know that that can cause them to work very hard to breathe, and when you work too hard to breathe for too long then your respiratory muscles tire out. And if your respiratory muscles tire out, then we're talking about now an oxygenation problem on top of ventilation. So the first step is always trying to figure out exactly how much distress that she's in. Um, And based on the case that you gave us, she looks like she's at very least in moderate distress, even with the words that they said, but with the increased respiratory rate. Um, And so different places use something kind of similar. You probably have heard of something about like a score so. Some places call it call it a respiratory score. Our facility calls it a clinical asthma score, um, but most places will have a scoring system to kind of standardize the way that we um, explain what how much distress they're in. Um, and so the asthma score usually includes respiratory rate, um, oxygenation level, how many areas of retraction, um, and uh, wheezing. The sound of the wheezing is it mild full expiratory, inspiratory, and expiratory. Um, So we use that to kind of get a picture of how much distress they're in. And then there'll be a breakdown of whether they're kind of mild, moderate, or severe. And once you get into a category that kind of gives a quick and easy list of do these medications first and reassess.
0: Perfect. So I think that's the key thing. I think everyone gets really nervous, and usually you have a the, the added bonus to you not only get to take care of the actual child, you also get to have to deal with the caveat of a very very frantic parent that's going to be there as well. So you yeah. have to take all those things into consideration when you, when you're making your assessment of the patient, which can be challenging at the time, and making sure you're able to communicate not only with the nursing staff, with your team, uh, but also with the parents to let them know what we're trying to do. So. I definitely it would give i remember we had a few cases that got pretty interesting so i definitely yeah,
1: definitely the first time weezers this can get interesting when the parents don't really understand what's going on um with a kid like this where it seems like <clears throat> she's had asthma before so it sounds like this parent should know a little bit about it but even with those children i get a little worried um if the child is in distress and the parent doesn't seem that worked up about it because mm. to me that sounds like oh they're in distress a lot so they they might have severe asthma. if This is not ringing anything on um, on your alarm scale right now. So
0: absolutely. So now that we got kind of the, the initial assessment of the patient. What are some key factors that you're looking for on your physical exam? We got some history. We got some things like that to kind of put them in the scoring. But now the patient's in the room and you're doing your exam. What are some things you're looking for that may be keying you into a more severe disease, more so than your vital tell you? So what's some things you're looking for?
1: Right. So uh, for nonverbal children, the more agitated they are, like you're concerned really any age, you worry about agitation because that's kind of that last step where the brain is realizing it's hard to breathe. I'm not able to ventilate and get air in and I'm, quote unquote about to die. So you need to do something. Um, definitely in the younger kids, we pay attention to the agitation in the verbal children. For one of the first things I look at is you know, how much are they talking? Are they able to answer questions and and, com- and converse with you? Um, which if they are, that's a little bit of a better sign. If they're really not trying to use words, if they're just using sign language, then, you know, that's um, a little bit more concerning. Um, Again, everything is focused on how much distress they're in. So I'm going to look at their areas of retractions. So for kids, we always look at, you know, subcostal, intercostal, suprasternal or supraclavicular, and then nasal flaring. Um, And then I was always taught, you know, they start at the bottom and go up in intensity. So you first recruit your subcostals and then usually you recruit your nasal flaring last. Um, So I want to see how many areas of retractions are they using? And then obviously hand out, you know, bust out your trusty stethoscope and listen to them. Is it mild wheezing, full expiratory wheezing, inspiratory and expiratory wheezing or the dreaded not much air entry at all um, to get a sense of how much air they're actually moving? I think one thing we did leave out in the history, which was mentioned a little bit in the case is I want to know um, how often do they come to the ER for their asthma and how often have they been admitted to the hospital plus or minus the ICU? Um, or ever been intubated?
0: Yeah, and that's the scary part. It's like you're asking all these questions, and like all these things are happening. But again, as you can see, this is going to be key to your assessment and your physical exam. Just getting all this information in because that can really change. Because I know anytime a real bat, a bad asthma patient come in, and usually for us, we was in room one when the bad ones came in, we would try to do everything we can. So we got that part taken care of. But then you you kind of being a person who you're you're attending, you're taking care of the entire ER. What personnel and equipment would you like in the room because I think sometimes having the room set up and having the individuals there definitely helps out quite a bit.
1: Right, definitely so in any critical patient, you know, always worry about your room set up. Um the younger they are, may need two nurses, but at least one nurse. Um, if they're really in severe distress, uh, you would probably want to have a respiratory therapist in there as well in case you need to set up any kind of extra ventil- uh, ventilatory equipment, if you're using something more than just like a Vinny mask or a non-rebreather mask, um, pharmacist, for sure. If you, um, have access to a clinical pharmacist in the room, particularly for the ones where you're going to be doing more of the adjunctive medicines versus not just the typical albuterol or astrovant that your, uh, nurse can pull up on her own. Um, Those are the people that I want to have in the room. Uh, If if it's an older child, you can get away with just one nurse, but the younger children, you'll have two.
0: Perfect. So now now that we got everyone in the room, we got our history. This is where we kind of really get into certain things. And the one thing that I really enjoy about pediatric emergency medicine is that guidelines and flow charts and just algorithms are always been like a stable. And it's something that really can help help us out. So, what's your first line agent? This is something that some people kind of deviate from. It really just depends on how the patient looks to them. Are you going with albuterol, or are you going straight to the combination of the albuterol, albuterol ipratropium, whether it's your dual neb or your your inhalers?
1: Right. So, uh, our facility we use mostly just uh, nebulizers. Um, they get a little worked up about inhalers. That's a different podcast for a different day because <laughs> about money and how expensive they are. Um, but definitely, um, you're going to be picking between albuterol or do a neb, um, nebulizer for me, if it's me in the room and I get to see the patient before the nurse protocol starts, then my first question is, is this a person who has a history of asthma Have they used albuterol before, or is this a first time we or first time Weezer? Uh, if they're a first time Weezer and no history of asthma, then I usually typically start with albuterol before first um, because they've not gotten albuterol and that is the first line medication. If they are an asthma patient and have either been admitted in the past or they've used albuterol prior to coming in, then I want to give them an extra medicine because they've already done albuterol at home and they're coming to the ER for extra support. So I think it's just fair to start out with another medicine, adjunctive medicine on. So for those, I would probably start with doing that. Our protocols allow for three treatments within the first hour of being there. So if they're in the moderate pathway, the nurse can actually go ahead and if they score high enough on the CAST score, she can draw the first two duonebs and the third albuterol and administer them um, every 20 minutes or she can dump them into one and run it over an hour. And that can kind of start the protocol, which is very helpful when it's a busy day and you have other critical patients, but you still want your asthma patients to get quick relief.
0: Absolutely. And I want to just caveat for the pharmacies that are listening. Again, a lot of these protocols and pathways, you want to work with your team to get these things set, because I I would love to say that we're able to be involved in every single case. uh, We're able to, or the attending, the person who has the most experience can be involved at all aspects of that care. But I think to make things more efficient, setting down and creating guidelines and protocols and really put having input in those really help out quite a bit. And I think that for something to really work, and I've been fortunate to, you know, work at two facilities and it come from one that actually had the pediatric emergency medicine combined in that same space. You really have to work hard with your team to make sure that these processes are automatic. Asthma, again, from a pediatric ER standpoint, is bread and butter. Everyone should know how that works. And then for the more severe patients, that's when, you know, by the time the attending comes to see that patient, the simple things should be taken care of. If we can go from there. Um, yep. I would just highlight again if we're talking doses, and things of that nature, just uh, for your, if you have the access to the ibuterol, dose inhaler, we're usually talking about four to six puffs with a spacer with your gut lungs, So that's going to be a key thing and usually going to need probably a team of two to help out with that. That's as parents and nurse or just two nurses to help out with that. Uh, when looking at your continuous infusion of ibuterol, if they're less than 15 kilos, it's going to be, again, based off your gout and what your study is going to support. But usually they're going to say around 7.5 milligrams an hour. Again, that's going to be, again, d- detailed to your shop. If they're greater than 15 kilos, maybe you can go ahead and do that 15 milligrams per hour. Again, there's a range of that. And I'm pretty sure someone's going to say, Jimmy, I do 20 or Jimmy, I do 10. That's fine. Just find what you guys use and go from there. And just realizing that if you're using, um, You're mixing it up with different stuff like that. Just make sure you have your team involved. And if we're going to add ipotropium, we're talking about anywhere from 0.5 to one milligram to add along with your albuterol to go from there. So, again, this is very similar doses that we do for adults. The patient population does pretty well at these doses, so you don't have to freak out about that. And that's why I like ASPA because it's very similar in at least the NEBS when it comes to our dosing and the, the formulations that we have the respiratory therapy may want to use a more dilute product, a more uh, concentrated product, and they may be mixing these things up versus just having to dual neps together. They may want to do a couple packages of the Ibuta and then just do one packet of the Ipetropian. So let them do their thing and just make sure that a guideline is set for that. Kevin, anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, I was going to say this is one of those um, disease processes where um, the children actually tolerate more medicine than the adults occasionally. So you can actually throw a lot of albuterol at children because they're wired to have higher heart rates than you can at you know some adults particular you know particularly the older ones are kind of in that asthma slash copd uh, group so yeah albuterol is a best friend for sure with the kids
0: so once we once we get to that i think the next step when people start to say okay this is where the attending should step in this is where the, the you know more people should step in is when it comes to the steroids so everyone has their own you know particular brand or their particular agent they want. What's your route when it comes to uh, adding steroids on and when do you add steroids on?
1: So I'll say the quick answer is my go-to is dexamethasone Um, with the caveat that it does depend on how much distress the patient is in. Um, Majority of them, if they are not in severe distress, I will start with dexamethasone for a couple of reasons. One, it can be given orally. So if I'm not ready or prepared to try and give an IV to a child who's probably already ticked off and agitated because they're breathing, I can still give them a dose of steroid that will have a quick enough onset of action. Um, two, if it's a patient that I think probably might be able to go home, I know the dexamethasone is going to last for nearly 72 hours, so I don't have to then send that patient home with a prescription for a steroid and hope that they take it the way that they're supposed to. Um, And three, it's quick access in the Pixis for our nurses. They can pull out the dexamethasone tabs and crush it up and do the dose that we need. So it's very easy to give, um, has a quick enough onset of action, very similar to your IV steroid medications. And if they're going to go home, it'll last for up to 72 hours. As far as who to give it to, if they're in the mild pathway, then most protocols say you don't necessarily have to give a steroid. However, any patient that I see that has a history of asthma that have been admitted to the hospital before or are already on a steroid controller, if they come to the ER for an asthma exacerbation, they're getting a dose of dexamethasone regardless of what their clinical asthma score is because that's just a higher risk patient. Um, but if, they're, if they don't have that history, then in the mild p- category, you don't necessarily have to give them dexamethasone. Anyone moderate, severe, they have to get a steroid moderate, you can start with dexamethasone. Severe, you're probably going to go ahead and do your methylprednisolone
0: because they are going to probably have an IV. One of the things that people talk quite a bit about, and, and depending on where you're what the spectrum you're on is to talk of whether you crush up your your tablets and, and give that PO or if some people are actually giving the IV formulation as PO, people have went back and forth. Well, that's going to be bioequivalent. That's something that's a decision you guys should make as a committee to see how you're going to do those things. Or if you're just going to go to more of a I IM. uh process when using dexmethasone and that's traditionally what I, i've seen i've been fortunate to work at uh, three or four different places that have pediatric er's and i would say 95 percent of the time we're using dexmethasone um yeah. again with those doses being on the on the lower end for those patients that are like less than 15 kilos we're talking about uh dispensing a packet of like eight milligrams if they're in that 15 to 25 milligram range is about 12 and once you start getting those bigger kids we're going to a max of about 16 cool thing for all my Lexicomp pharmacists if you look on LexiComp for the adult patients, they usually cap them out as about 12. And then when you look at for your, your pediatric patients, it's 16. So don't freak out if you're you're just starting out working your PTR job and they're giving bigger doses for these patients. So LexiComp fails us when it comes to that, when it, looking at the adult dosing versus the pediatric dosing. So it can really get intriguing. Um, some people at some point like to do the IM dexmethasone. Again, dosing can be really close, about zero point six mg per kg, maxing out at that sixteen. And I've seen others again with the bigger kids, pr- primarily give uh, methylpred uh, two milligrams per kilogram, maxing out about sixty milligrams. Again, if that's, that's that severe group that I see when it comes to steroids, and overall, again, we're trying our best to again upregulate some of those those beta receptors, and these patients are de- decreased that inflammatory process that's going on. So it really helps out quite a bit, and. This argument of the onset, because I argue like, oh, we, we should do this because, you know, the onset's not going to be for hours later. But a lot of the data say you prevent recurrence. And if you want to get really nerdy, there is some, you know, receptor upregulation that may help your beta two agonists work a little bit more efficiently. And these I want to give a kid. In acute distress, whatever they need as soon as possible, so I can get this kid at a more stable condition and really get this kid from progressing to a little bit more intense version of what they have going on. Because there's nothing worse than a, a situation like that. And yeah, our
1: goal is to get them to one or two places, either into the hospital in a better distress than they are now, or to get them home comfortably. And either place, I'm going to want those re- those um, receptors upregulated so that they can help. So. Even if the onset is two hours later, well, we're doing the albuterol and atrovent for these two hours. And by the time we get done doing that, they're going to continue on albuterol. They need those rec- uh, receptors upregulated. So absolutely. Definitely and, don't wait the steroids.
0: And Kevin, I think some people believe that the time moves slower in the ER than it actually yeah. does.
1: <laughs> Until you work there, then you realize how fast things
0: actually move. Because <laughs> so four, four hours. Yeah, boom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have you a, a patient like this, you have a few other patients that are more, you know, severe, if you have two or three sick patients in your ER, four hours may go by and be like, "Wait, I have to go see this." It's you know, changing. shoulder pain over here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you throw one
1: procedure in there, you definitely lost two hours <laughs> real quick. So
0: and then you're responsible for other questions that come up. You're responsible again being an attending. You're responsible for for all of your residents. I'm now looking over two two residents, one student at at a time, and that takes up time as well. So I think. Yep. Um, it's is quite a bit of time that can go by really quickly. So yep. now that we have the, the inhalers or the nebulizers and we have steroids on board, this one things get a little, a little tricky. The data is not as not as strong. And this is where I say you like it. I love it. Uh, but things get very interesting once you start talking about magnesium, because people either really, really love it. My buddy, Nick Yarbrough, really loves ma- magnesium. Uh, w- what's your thoughts on magnesium and where does it fit for you?
1: So me as a pediatric ER doctor, and then before that being a pediatric resident on the floor, I'm a big fan of magnesium sulfate. And when you do look at the data, the, the studies that supported the use of it, they had one clear purpose in mind, and that clear purpose was to keep them out of the ICU. And that's where it showed benefit. Um, it didn't, if they were already admitted to the ICU, or if they were already admitted in the hospital, it didn't really, you know, sh- uh, shorten hospital time. And it may not have prevented people from being admitted to the hospital in general, but it did help prevent either uh, transfer to the ICU from the floor or admission to the ICU from the ER. So I'm a big fan of it. In a patient who's in the severe category, if it's a patient I'm throwing the kitchen sink at, they're going to get magnesium sulfate with a bolus of fluids to counteract the fears of the hypotension, which I have yet to see because I always give them fluids. Um, So I think that's a fear that people have, but that can be handled pretty well. So I'm a fan of it. I've worked very closely with my critical care um, colleagues. And of course, they're not fans of it, because (laughs) again, once they make it to the ICU, it doesn't do much. And so they're not big fans of it. Um, And I just joke with them many times about, hey, there was many patients when I was a resident on the floor where the nurses were about to call a pet call, where I said, let's give them some mag. And I staved off the pet call and saved them from the ICU that night until the next morning. So I'm a fan of magnesium sulfate. A lot of PEDS ER docs are fans of mag sulfate. You're probably the group that's going to bounce back against you would be your critical care docs. But again, that's just because they're getting the worst of the worst and it's not going to help them.
0: Absolutely. So again, and dosing of that again for, for my PEDS people is going to be 50 mix per keg. Again, you want to give it a little quicker. So this is the, I, I love this little pearl, especially, and I'm pretty sure you've got the residents and the nurses on this as well. If you want to give it, Quicker than you would do for MAT repletion. So for me, that's over 20, 30 minutes. Uh, some shops may say 15 minutes. Again, you want to get that large volume, uh, that large concentration up front. Cause again, that's going to be able to help cost from that smooth muscle relaxation exactly what you need in that situation. And, um, from a peat standpoint, again, my shot, we cap out at two grams. Um, Thank that's you. kind of our, our cap and it's pretty easy. I would say the most challenging part is actually physically making it because you have to be, draw this up depending on the dosing, it's like, does it go on a pediatric syringe pump or does it actually goes on the IV smart pump and how to make sure that the dosing of it is corrected for our nursing staff and everyone to do it really quickly at the bedside, because it got me one time. I was like, wait a second. Okay. 50 mix per keg is one gram. I only have a two gram bag. Let me make sure. Do I just draw out the bag, you know, that the half of it and then put a sticker over top of the, the actual two gram label. So I think from a, perspective uh, actually at the bedside, drawing these things up, just find a way that works well for you guys that people can scan these medications and ensure the right dose has been administered and that we give it over that quicker period of time, because that's actually what we want. Yeah. This is probably one of
1: the two main drugs that we use that the nurse and the doctors are going to really be appreciative of their clinical pharmacist. Uh, <laughs> Magnesium sulfate and then one of the drugs we're probably about to talk about in a little bit.
0: Perfect. So again, now we have this patient where we're now progressing to a little bit more severe uh, category and they're they're able to ventilate fine, uh, but they won't calm down. And this is the patients that really make you worried, make me worried because I think physically, just looking at them, they look pretty bad at this point, and they're just thrashing around and their heart control. Uh, what's what do we do, then Like, what's in your toolbox for those patients?
1: So this is where I get to pull out one of my favorite drugs, which is probably one of every ER <laughs> doc or clinical pharmacist favorite drugs. Um, but this is where ketamine is definitely Absolutely. one of the best friends. Um, definitely can help give you some of the relaxation that you need with some of their anxiety that they're going through. Their uh, well-deserved anxiety because they're having problems breathing. Um, so give you some of that. And as we all know that the medicine has some smooth muscle relaxation in it and helps with asthma being a third line medication for status asthmaticus. So this is where I would reach for my 0.5 mg per kg of ketamine if it's just going to be an intermittent dose. If I know it's a real bad kid, um, this might be where you want to tag your pharmacist and your RT together and say, hey, we need to set up BiPAP. And I might need to go ahead and just give them like a full almost sedation sized dose of one meg per kid to get them really calm. Um, Because your starting question was, what are you doing with the ventilation and if they won't calm down? And so in my mind, I'm always thinking, what's the next step? Next step is intubation and intubation is that danger word that a taboo word with asthma patients because we know that we do not want to intubate them as much as possible so i'm going to give them everything i can and ketamine is a great friend for that
0: absolutely again again some uh, some shops again ketamine is gonna be weird guys i'm gonna go ahead and say it up front depending on your state laws depending on all the things that your nursing staff can do or can't do when it comes to ketamine in the dosing whether it's 0.4 Nine mix per kick as a bolus they may can give, whether zero point five. So again, depending on what your your state laws are, what your nursing laws are, what is considered sedation versus what is called, you know, I think the terminology of all these things need to be laid out. You know, and as you're making your protocols, make sure that someone from the nursing C-suite or someone that wears wears the suits are available when talking about ketamine, because you can piss a lot of people off if they're not involved in a process of a nurse administering uh, ketamine for some type of sedation, because we we get very close to if a patient won't tolerate N.I.V., and that's a procedure and we're given sedation for that it's this quote unquote procedural sedation in the paperwork and all the nonsense to go along with that that's just a huge argument and that's where I've seen a lot of back and forth between my nursing staff and my physician staff like I don't want to do procedural sedation I want just to calm down for this and the dosing of ketamine uh, from a you know from a legal standpoint gets very interesting so make sure that everyone has a nice talk about that because there is continuous infusions as well. Um, that people yeah. can be on. So it really needs a team approach to figure out how you're going to do it. And I feel the ER and the you are pretty comfortable with ketamine for the most part now. Um, mm-hmm. I would say five, six years ago, probably not not so yep. much. But now I think we're, we're comfortable. But depending on your ER, if you're a small shop or you're a community shop where, you know, you don't have as much academics out there, it may be a very, very big chance to get ketamine. So uh, we can all work together yeah. to get get those things taken care of.
1: And here we get plenty of emails every year about, you know, sedation protocols and what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, so I, I make sure that's one of the things that I do. And my clinical pharmacist that I'm working with is making sure that we're using the appropriate language to kind of deescalate those nurses before they start talking about what their board says they can and cannot do. So I'm very specific. I want ketamine 0.5 mg per kg for anxiolysis and smooth smooth muscle relaxation. I do not bring up the word procedural sedation or sedation at all. Um, and if they ask me, I say, I didn't say that. And when I write <laughs> the computer order, it doesn't say anything for sedation. It just says angiolysis and smooth muscle relaxation.
0: That's the thing. That's is like,
1: nice step.
0: If these kids can just calm down for a second. And again, as you mentioned before, they can't breathe. <laughs> like right. it, that's completely fine for them to feel that way. But it really kind of messes up all the things we're trying to do for them. And they can just chill out for like 30 minutes they may be in a good spot. So I think that's where we're at. I will caveat that there's some other things we can do. Again, epi is always going to be out there. Some people I'll like bring ch- that. Up. Yeah, yep. yeah, you can, you can go to epi if you want to.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that's another medicine that I can use. That's a real quick bridge medicine to get us to let some of these other medicines kick in. Um, the old timers, that's what they had before they had albuterol and terbutaline. They just did epi, epi, epi until the patient got better. Um, and I've seen, I've seen a kid who was code situation because of their asthma. Um, and the only thing that stopped us from being able to intubate them was giving them two doses of I am epi while we were getting all the other medications in, on board, um, including the ketamine with the BiPAP. So I was definitely going to say before you, the next step, even before intubation after ketamine should be uh, I am epi. And if my kids come in in the severe pathway, I'm doing everything, especially in the, in the pandemic era, in the world of COVID ERs and everything being crazy with volume load and then not wanting to be in and out of the room for respiratory patients i'm giving the kids in the severe category i am epi up front at the same time i'm giving them the other albuterol just hit everything hard and get them open
0: perfect and then some people like terbutaline i think the data's really iffy for that but i'm not gonna fight you if you failed epi usually i don't have i don't have the terbutaline downstairs so it takes me a while so i keep it upstairs solely because i want to go through all this other things first and go from there be is another agent that people can play around with um but from a drug standpoint that's where we get if we felt that that's where things get a little little bit more interesting and this is when i'm coming over with the with the bag full of all all the other additional meds and uh some serious conversations start to happen so again let's go ahead and get into what do you do if you have to intubate a kid
1: Right. So first thing I'm going to do is uh, obviously talk to the family and let them know how serious of a situation we're in and explain why we're doing everything we're going to do. Second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to call my ICU doctors and uh, for lack of better words, apologize to them, (laughs) but also explain to them the situation that we're in. Um, This is like one of the main, one of the things that definitely stuck with me from my training uh, in my ICU rotations was how much PICU doctors are afraid of intubating patients like they have. Uh, asthma patient, intubating asthma patients, they all have horror stories from their fellowship of intubating asthma patients and having to manually help them with ventilation and expiration while they're on the ventilator. So they want to do everything they can before they get to that point. Um, But if we've done, if we've gone through all that, we've got them on BiPAP and ketamine drip and still not uh, getting to where we need them to get to, Then for the intubation, what I'm going to go with is uh, I'm going to use ketamine as my induction agent again, so it can help with that smooth muscle relaxation. Um, And then uh, this is one where I might actually want to go with sucks for kids. I know most of the time we pick rocuronium for kids um, just because of the theoretical uh, contraindications for sucks. But again, with these kids where you want their body to do as much help with the expiration as possible this might be a good kid that you would um, candidate
0: for uh, sucks. Perfect. And I think just having all those things available. And then for me, one of the big questions I'm asking is like, all right, now we're doing this. What are we gonna do for after? How can we help them calm down? So this is where depending on your shop, it can be very interesting. I know we've had issues with getting drips on kids when I was there uh, as figuring out, okay, because they're boarded as something in the ER and just the, from a physical like EMR standpoint, there were some issues getting drips on board. But I think just talking about the plan for after, and I think we always had a pretty good relationship where I would have these things available. We would see what happened post-intubation, and then we'll start to get do things as according to the patient, the hemodynamics, things of that nature. Because I think pharmacists who work between uh, ER pharmacists going back and forth between adult and pediatric, you have to check yourself with the vitals. <laughs> you really have to, because I think... You see a heart rate in the, you know, 140s, 150s. You think one thing where you're looking at that like, oh, okay. <laughs>
1: yes. Outside, y'all get more scary because y'all see the ones like in the 40s. And we get more scary about numbers like in the 200s, not one fifty. Yeah. So.
0: so I think that we're just like checking what, like, I always had a badge shrill that had pediatric vitals on them. Just like what were the standard things? Because once I figured that out, I can find the doses. I can find all the different things and just like bring my clinical mind into all of this. Like, okay. This is bad. This is good. I'm okay right now. Don't freak out. Because even when we learn, it's like, these are the things where if you have a floor nurse that would tell me, oh, we can't accept the patient because the blood pressure is, you know, 170 over something is like, that's nothing in the ER. Like I've had a 300, like that's nothing. Uh, (laughs) Relativity. Yeah. It's all about what they're used to. (laughs) So I think just like getting, having you some type of batch reel or something that, that to help you understand if you're going back and forth between the two really helps out. So again, of course-
1: at our facility, we have a badge reel that has vital signs, and we also have one that has our clinical asthma score on it. Oh, um, Particularly if you're in the ER, it's one of the thing one of the main diseases you're going to see, and so being able to have that handy dandy and be able to communicate that number quickly is very helpful.
0: Yeah, I, I can I can pretty much say that any pediatric er because again if you if you have a dedicated pediatric er you're pretty specialized or so you have a, a decent amount of resources and people going to be coming to you you will see asthma you will see asthma maybe every day you would yeah. uh, see it you may have a whole row of asthma a lot that on what time of the year it is so i think it's a, a super uh, bronchitis time
1: bronchitis and seizures is what keeps the pediatric er door open <laughs> those three you can be very comfortable in and
0: this is definitely our, our bread and butter, but I think that's a good point for us to, to kind of cap it there. We're going to put a lot more stuff in the show notes, but I want to like this, look at this topic overall and just, you know, see what's your final thoughts. If you're, you know, teaching this at at conference or you're you're, you're talking to medical students that want to go into pediatric emergency medicine and talking about pediatric asthma, what's your overall, you know, thoughts about this topic?
1: It's really just kind of instilling in them, you know, the importance of recognizing, the cues for distress and asthma. Um, Again, it's, you talk to anyone who's practiced pediatric emergency medicine or pediatric ICU a very long time. The very bad asthma patient is one of the most scary patients that you'll get. And so the whole goal is to, we have all these beautiful medicines that work very well if you give them in the right amount of time. Recognize when they're in any level of distress, give them those medications so we can keep them out of the severe distress. And I think sometimes that's the hardest part for people who aren't used to kids is learning how to recognize uh, respiratory distress in them. So that's why when I'm teaching students at the bedside and residents at the bedside for asthma, my main goals are to teach them about recognizing distress. Because like you said, most places have asthma protocols and guidelines in line. So they just need to know how to get the patient on the right pathway. Absolutely.
0: All right. That, that's that's a good good point for us. I want to just, again, thank you for coming on the show. I feel like we should have did this years ago. Uh, but again, <laughs> everyone is always busy doing what they're, they're doing. And it's always great to try to, if you want something done, talk to a busy person. So we, we finally got this taken care of. Uh, any way that people can reach out to you professionally?
1: Oh, yes, most definitely. Um, emails for sure. Uh, K-E-V Allen at Augusta dot edu. Um, or uh, you can go through. Um, I'm on Facebook as well, but mainly through my email. That's what I answer the most to. Um, I need to get my social media game up a little bit, but <laughs> right now the emails is where I go.
0: We'll definitely be be, be pubbing up that as well. Uh, anything again? I know you, you you do a lot of work for um for our kids that has different type of violent injury things that nature. Anything you want to shout out? Any initiative or any charity or anything that you just want to make people more aware of? Because again, I think this is a a good platform to do that.
1: Yeah, just always want to remind people about child abuse and neglect, um, definitely with how numbers go up during pandemics. Anytime you have global stress or economical stress on a, on a society, that's going to increase the risk of child abuse and neglect. So you definitely want to keep an eye out for your children and, and recognize the warning signs. Um, April is always child abuse and sexual abuse awareness month. So um, maybe make a plan for yourself to pick up something to read, in April about child abuse, neglect or, or uh, donate to your local child advocacy center or child enrichment um, centers. They're the community uh, specialists who um, specialize in taking care of these patients as far as interviewing them and getting them all the resources they need. So if you want to donate to someone, that would be the group I would shout out.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think we, we, in the general population, we, it's something we don't want to look at it's something that we kind of shy away from, but again, adding resources to those areas and making sure that we're bringing, shedding light on those issues is going to be very important because again, we've had a few cases where we just think to ourselves, like, how can these things happen? And, you know, how can we provide the best resources for these patients and really give people the help that they need? So uh, definitely think for the work that you're doing in that area. Again, I think that is something that is unique and something that is definitely needed and probably needed a ton more. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, that wasn't even
1: my first level of training. Um, we need a lot more child abuse physicians. So definitely anything that we all can do to do our part to help out is is great.
0: Perfect. All right, guys, I'm going to close you guys out with a few announcement again. This is going to be released in, in February. So, you know, that our first emergency medicine uh, conference is coming to Empower Rx Conference it's been going really well so far. I'm actually just amazed by the support we've received over the last few months of that. So if you're interested in it, go to empowerrx/conference.com. If you go to any of the websites, whether it's Farm So Hard, Pharmacy Fraud Day, or our PACU website, you can definitely uh, find a, a banner at the very top of the screen. So definitely check that out. We're not trying to be... Uh, Extra, again, again if, if you're a practitioner, 75 bucks If you're a resident, 30 bucks And if you're a student, it, it, it's free We're gonna be providing eight hours of continued education For our pharmacists, our, our pharmacist is gonna be there And again, it's, it's gonna be a great time We have phenomenal speakers So go check that out and let me know I promise you won't be disappointed If you can't make it live on March 11th and 12th It will be available for home study And lastly, I wanna shout out the PACU That's where I do most of, of my premium work Again, Pharmacy and Acute Care University we are undergoing rapid growth right now so if you've been with us in the beginning from like october to now uh, the next few months going to be tremendous growth we've added so many components where we now send you guys the literature review uh, every other week we have uh, a question bank that's going to be getting built right now we have a host of things that where if you're interested in anything pharmacotherapy related that's definitely a place for you to be in our premium membership at pacu again that's going to be pharmacy/acutecareuniversity.com Thank you guys for all that. And I'm going to go ahead and close it out. As I always do, guys. Remember, you don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in ED. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there.